Welcome to a healthy bite. You're one nibble closer to a more satisfying way of life, a healthier you, and bite-sized bits of healthy motivation. Now let's dig in on the dish with Rebecca Huff. Hey, it's Rebecca, and I'm here today with Judith Finlayson, and she is the author of You Are What Your Grandparents Ate, which I found to be a very fascinating and scientific explanation of a lot of things that I've thought about over the years. So can you tell me a little bit about what you do and why you decided to write this book? Well, um, I'm a, a journalist for many, many years, and uh, I've always been a foodie, and I've always been really interested in nutrition, and uh, about 15, actually longer than that, little around the end of the 1990s, I was offered an opportunity to write a cookbook, and I did, and that cookbook was very successful. So at that point, I decided I'd turn my hobby, which had been food and cooking, uh, into a career and wrote cookbooks for about 15 years. And, um, and I enjoyed that, but part of my uh, quest as a, foot, as a cookbook writer was really beginning to explore nutrition and the science of nutrition. Uh, and so I began, I did a couple of books. I did a book on whole grains, got very interested in the health benefits of whole grains. And that was about 2006 that I was writing that. Uh, and um, a book called The Healthy Slow Cooker, which really took a lot of the then science of uh, phytonutrients and looked at how um, food as medicine really helped to keep you uh, in tip-top shape. And then I uh, was introduced to the work of Dr. David Barker. And David Barker was an epidemiologist, a British uh, doctor, who had begun to study, um, as an epidemiologist, uh, the health, health in Britain and Wales. He did a big scientific thing called the Atlas of Mortality in Britain and Wales or whatever. And he began to notice some interesting things. At that point, heart disease was thought to be a disease of affluence. It was, um, the conventional wisdom was that it, was, it stemmed from too much fatty food, primarily meat, saturated fat. But his statistics were showing that heart disease was much more prevalent in areas of the country that were characterized by poverty. So that got him really interested in kind of why that was, it was different than what he expected. And when he really took a look at his statistics, he found that the infant mortality rate 70 years earlier could be closely tied to the rate of heart disease 70 years later. So i.e. there was some link between the infant mortality rate and the rates of heart disease uh, in the next generation. And that got him very interested in the idea of pregnancy. 
and nutrition in pregnancy and what was going on in pregnancy and were there any links with chronic disease. Over the next 15, 10 to 15 years, he was able to access a number of databases. And I talk about this in detail in You Are What Your Grandparents Ate. Uh, the first was the Hertfordshire ledgers, which were based on English data around the uh, turn of the 20th century. And using that data, he was able to develop what was then called the Barker hypothesis. And he showed that low birth weight, 5.5 pounds or less, could be directly linked with heart disease later in life. He then went on to discover, well, he didn't discover them, but he found out about uh, data that had been kept during the Second World War during a period called the Dutch uh, Hunger Winter. And that was when the Germans closed off food supplies to um, the Netherlands. And the women who were pregnant, the, the Dutch keep very detailed medical records. So they had comprehensive health records on the women who were pregnant during that time. And they showed that those women who experienced famine were far more likely to produce offspring that had uh, metabolic illnesses such as obesity, type 2 diabetes, or again, heart disease. And the third real body of evidence uh, that he was introduced to is something called the Helsinki birth cohort. And the Finnish people began to keep very detailed records uh, of groups of people in 1934. Unlike the other two big databases, the Hertfordshire uh, ledgers ended at year one. They tracked from birth to year one. And the Dutch hunger winter was very focused on what went on in pregnancy. Uh, in Finland, they tracked the children right through until they were age 11. So with using that data, he was able to show that it wasn't only low birth rate, but also how children developed and grew in their early years that influenced the development of chronic disease. But all of these databases added up to um, very, very compelling evidence that uh, there were very strong connections between how well a fetus was nourished in the womb and whether it would develop uh, chronic illness as an adult. Right. So let's talk a little bit about another study that you mentioned in your book. This was a study that they conducted on um, mothers who had been pregnant during the Great Leap Forward. During this period when there was widespread famine, I think like how many, half a billion people or something like that experienced famine. And they did this study you talk about in your book about how the findings, uh, they, they did the study on mothers who were pregnant or who got pregnant right after the famine. So how can we, first of all, tell us a little bit about those findings and also how we can use that information for, 
for us now for mothers who want to get pregnant and who are planning to have families? Well, the Chinese data was interesting. Uh, I mean, all of these databases um, add interesting new little twists to kind of what we already know. Mm -hmm. With the Chinese data, it was um, with hypoglycemia, uh, and uh, or hyperglycemia, rather. And it showed that the children of mothers who were pregnant during the famine were 10 point, I'm trying to remember the figures because I want to, I'm, it's not only mothers, that, what, that study was interesting. Anyway, they had a much higher rate of hyperglycemia uh, and the, that study showed that that risk was also passed on to offspring. It also showed that the fathers were uh, subject to famine had almost an equal impact on whether the offspring would be hyperglycemic, and that too was passed on to the offspring. So what we're seeing, and I, I don't want to negate the mother experience because the mother's body is the vessel in which the fetus is nourished and fed. But we are beginning to see as they expand our horizons that the quality of the male sperm is also having an influence on the development, healthful development of babies. Um, when we come back to the mother, probably the single best thing we can do to reduce the incidence of chronic illness is to make sure that pregnant women, and ideally women before they even get pregnant, uh, are very well nourished. Um, and uh, David Barker was able to run some statistics that showed that if all babies were born at an average birth weight, that is between 5.5 and 9 pounds, the incidence of type 2 diabetes would be reduced by 50% in one generation. Wow. So that's a really compelling study. And I'm told by scientists that it, there really isn't anything comparable in terms of what we can do to improve our health, that it's really a, a, a tremendous uh, statement. Wow, that is fascinating. I am, and that was going to be one of my next questions is so because you do prove the point so well in your book that what our grandparents ate definitely has an impact. And so kind of the question you're left with is now, what do we do to make sure that the future generations aren't suffering from these chronic illnesses or so we can lessen the prevalence of them in the future. In the circumstances like you mentioned here in America where um, maybe not enough emphasis is being put on um, gestational nutrition, um, what would you recommend? Well, well, good nutrition is absolutely key. Right. Uh, so making sure that both pregnant women and women before they get pregnant 
uh, are well nourished because the fetus will draw on the nutrient, well, not only depends on the nutrients that the mother's body provides, but if she's not providing enough nutrition, it will draw on the nutrients that are already in her body. So if she doesn't have enough nutrient reserves, um, the fetus is not going to get the nutrients it needs to develop properly, which results in um, poor organ formation and also in epigenetic changes. I want to talk to you a bit about uh, a mice, a mouse study, which I talk about in the book because it was a groundbreaking study. David Barker's initial research was epidemiologic, i.e. looking at disease patterns in large groups of people. Around the year 2000, the science of epigenetics started to play a role. So epidemiology was showing what was happening, i.e. statistically we can show that this happens. With epigenetics, uh, it began to show how this is happening. And one of the most compelling studies is the Agouti mouse study, which was published in, I think, 1998, if I remember correctly. And the Agouti mouse study showed there were this collection of mice that had been bred to be very beautiful but were very unhealthy. And uh, that study showed that by providing the pregnant females with specific nutrients that improved an epigenetic process known as methylation, they not only improved the health of those female mice who were prior to being fed these nutrients were likely to die young or to have serious chronic illnesses. It improved the health of their offspring and their offspring's offspring. Now you want to know how that happens and it happens again it's epigenetically. And I'll give you a couple of compelling examples of someone else who was working in the area around the time that David Barker started, and that's a Swedish epidemiologist named Lars, Lars Bergen. And he found, he studied um, the small town in Sweden that he grew up in, and I don't quite know why he decided to do that, but uh, he found that it, it was an agricultural community. So some years there was an abundance of crops and other years the community was in near starvation. He found that when young boys ate too much around the time of puberty, it, it destined their grandsons to a significantly earlier death. When young women who were or when women who were pregnant during a time of famine had the same effect on their granddaughters. What we now know, thanks to the science of epigenetics, is that around the time of puberty, male sperm cells are forming. So that's a time that those cells are particularly vulnerable to environmental impacts like 
nutrition. Same thing is happening when a female is pregnant because the female fetus that she is developing is developing all her eggs while she is in her mother's womb. So if the mother experiences poor nutrition, that experience is etched on those eggs and it's transmitted through the generations. So that's why we can say scientifically that you are what your grandparents ate. It is thanks to this, these biological memories, um, which are really epigenetic modifications resulting from the impact of things like, uh, and it's not only nutrition, nutrition plays a key role in it, but we also have toxic exposures and chronic stress. So if we come back to what pregnant women can do, those three things are the keys to developing a healthy baby. Sound nutrition and sound nutrition, in the book we talk about precon preconception nutrition, starting three months really before you even intend to get pregnant. And that's for both sexes because it helps to improve the quality of sperm. Uh, avoiding toxins and uh, avoiding chronic stress or trauma. So it's not just diet, it's also lifestyle choices that are impacting our children and our grandchildren. Yes. So obviously if you're planning to try to conceive a baby within the next three to six months, no smoking, no drinking, you know, up your game in the nutrition department and try to avoid environmental toxins. Um, so I know you talk uh, a bit about some of these choices that we can make in your book. So what you're saying is that even though this is etched on our cells, like you were saying, there are things we can do to improve the circumstances. Yes, absolutely. And that's, that's the gift of epigenetics. We, we now know that uh, even small, moderate changes, such as improving, uh, getting a little bit more exercise, not being a sedentary, even small changes in diet. I mean, think of the agouti mice, just adding those nutrients that support methylation. Um, really have a very positive effect on the epigenetic processes that influence um, healthy development. A, a very clear example of, of how just providing specific nutrients around uh, methylation improves the health not only of those mice, but of their children and their children's children. Um, so it's, you know, a very compelling example of how positive, taking positive steps can have very positive effects. Yes, yes. Um, so let's switch tracks just a little bit because I read uh, a bit about, you talk about inflammation in your book and you recommended certain types of ways that you can eat. I think one was the Pritkin diet and the Mediterranean diet. So how is inflammation connected to what our grandparents ate? Is there a connection and how does this impact our health? 
as far as you know chronic illness and things like that well inflammation is i i believe something that uh scientists are looking more and more at uh as a route for many many diseases mm -hmm. uh, when you look, uh, I talk about the mummy studies in the book, and really, um, when they started to look at, at mummies from very different areas and looked at bone densities and atherosclerosis and etc., the common link was inflammation, and inflammation being very linked to uh, the development of plaque. And it's also been linked with autoimmune diseases. Um, when we get, uh, when we begin to look at it more deeply, people are beginning to sense that part of why we're seeing a rise, for instance, in autoimmune diseases is uh, because of the theory known as the hygiene hypothesis. And that is that we do not have we're, we're basically too clean, our environments are too sterile, and we don't have enough, ben we're, we're killing off all the beneficial bacteria as we, you know, zap the Bacterial soap and that kind of thing. Yeah, and so this sets the stage for the development. They, they've been able to link this with inflammatory diseases and so on because we don't have enough beneficial bacteria to fight off um, uh, pathogens and um, you know they're, they're allowed to take over so inflammation is a very uh, serious undercurrent to a wide variety uh, of diseases from heart disease and diabetes uh, obesity um, they, they f have found, for instance, and the microbiome, I did a whole chapter, chapter nine in the book, is on the microbiome. And in many ways, that was a bit of an add-on. Uh, it's relatively new science. It's the emerging science. It's not something that David Barker was really meant to be the focus of this book. But David Barker died really before the microbiome began to gain traction. And it's interesting because one of the scientists I talked to who had worked with him, um, we talked a little bit about uh, the hygiene hypothesis. And he said, you know, well, David really actually thought that he invented that, <laughs> that, uh, that description. So uh, he was aware of it, and it was obviously on his radar. Um, but I, I'm, I'm convinced that there's, as we learn more and more about the microbiome, we're also going to see that it really comes into play. And that's why, for instance, um, uh, things like breastfeeding are so important for babies. Mm -hmm. One of the... It, you know, it does have the right range of nutrients for babies, but the other thing is that it really has, uh, it improves the bacterial profile. It contains probiotics, uh, it contains prebiotics, breast milk, 
Uh, and the mother, the skin-to-skin -skin contact is actually providing a lot of very, very beneficial bacteria. So enrichment of the microbiome is one of the great benefits, if not the great benefit, uh, of breastfeeding babies. Um, and so that, you know, it, it just becomes a kind of cascade of how that, mm -hmm. you know, affects health over the long term. Yeah, I thought that was really fascinating um, because I have experienced this. I've talked to my doctor a lot about the microbiome, and I think gut health was part of what you talked about in relation to inflammation. I even went through a process of some very delicious note the sarcasm, tasting herbal concoction to bust up the biofilm in my gut. And then I had to take some um, charcoal, like a blend of different things to absorb all of these toxins that were being broken up. So that was kind of an interesting process. And I actually did see over a six month period of time, a, a huge improvement and my inflammation levels, including my C-reactive protein markers, um, just from doing this, I'm busting up this uh, biofilm. So I think that there's a lot that we can learn um, as far as how our gut health affects these chronic illnesses and inflammation. Um, I was very interested in your mentioning the Pritkin diet and how you said that it, in combination with exercise, really has been shown to reduce the levels of C-reactive protein. Is that right? Yes, that is. But other, I mean, I, I, the more I research the subject, the more I am convinced that personalized nutrition is really the way to go, that there's no such thing as a one-size-fits-all diet. What did you uh, call it? Personalized nutrition. So um, and it's just starting now, nutrigenomics, nutri-epigenetics. Um, and so really, the scientists know a lot about it. And um, Kent Thornburg, who wrote the foreword for You Are What Your Grandparents Ate, uh, tells me that at Oregon uh, Health and Sciences University, they can actually um, um, track or define people's epigenomes, but it's hugely, hugely expensive at this point. I mean, it's, it's not something you can do for a general population. Mm -hmm. uh, but no doubt, it'll be like 23andMe, and we'll start, you know, trickling, trickling down over the years, and we'll all be able to do it. But then we'll be able to really find out what genetic variants we have and how those genetic variants interact with specific nutrients and foods. I mean, if we go back to the agouti mice, they had serious methylation issues uh, because the, the, they were bred to be beautiful, to have these beautiful orange coats. And in the process, that the, the breeders probably didn't know this, but they were, uh, shutting down the function of a particular gene. And that was what was predisposing these mice to generations of terrible health and early death. Uh, when they introduced these specific nutrients that targeted uh, methylation, the methylation processes, 
they were able to turn those genes back on and improve the health of the mice over generations. So that's an example of, I think, the kind of thing we're looking uh, to being able to do with people. Mm. We're just in the tip of the iceberg now. Mm-hmm. Well, um, um, what you were saying just then made me think of another um, genetic um, thing that's really, I've heard a lot more about recently, and that is the MTHFR. What are your thoughts about that? Well, I'm, pro- I'm the worst case scenario on MTHFR. I'm a hetero- hetero- compound heterozygous. Explain so, to us what that means. <laughs> two, I'm not, homozygous is when you have two base sets that match, and heterozygous is when they don't match, but they're variants that are off the, the uh, base cycle that you should have. Um, so that means one, so I, I, I would say that one of the most useful things that I ever did a number of years ago on the recommendation of my naturopath was to have my, my genes mapped and I had my methylation genes done and discovered this. And I've had with me, um, my issues have been an inability to detox. So for instance, if I'm prescribed a drug that I had to take for a period of time, it ends up building up in my body and I end up having a bad reaction to it uh, because I just don't expel toxins. So with the MTHRF issues, there are uh, things that you can do and that is supporting them through, like the Agouti mouse uh, study, uh, Methylation-supported nutrients. So I take methylfolate, methyl B6, and methyl B12, and uh, it's really, really helped sort out uh, my, you know, my many of my health issues. So, well, I think there's so much to be learned from your book. So if people are just getting started learning about these types of things, and you know, maybe someone has some challenging invisible illness that um, they have a lot of symptoms and say they're going to the doctor and they're not getting you know answers what what types of steps would you recommend for someone like that finding out like what types of tests could they ask their doctor to perform to try to get some answers well I would certainly start with having your you know your genes mapped because that's a very very good start and I really think that's the way we're going in terms of personalized nutrition Mm-hmm. But if we come back to our original uh, premise, which is, you know, what do you do for pregnant women? Um, it really comes back to eating a healthy diet, in addition to avoiding toxins and, and stress and trauma. I mean, which is much easier said than done. I mean, sure, yeah, don't get stressed, but, you know, you know or if you're in an abusive relationship or if you're experiencing a hurricane. Uh, You know, these things are very, very challenging and have been shown to have an effect on pregnancies and pregnancy outcomes. But, you know, let's say that the environment, you know, you're on a kind of level playing field. Um, A healthy diet is really the best start. And a healthy diet is, 
a very a, a wide variety of nutrients. Um, Michael Pollan said it best, uh, you know, eat food, mostly plants, uh, not too much. Uh, and don't eat anything your great grandmother would have not recognized as food. And that, if I, if one thing, I wouldn't say changed, but was really, really re-emphasized for me in writing this book. I've never been a great fan of processed foods, and I've never eaten a lot of processed foods. But the more research I did, uh, and a lot of it is in "You Are What Your Grandparents Ate." Uh, the more convinced I became that these ultra-processed foods are really deadly. And the science is now starting to, you know, to show that. They're linking uh, consumption of processed foods with early death. And that's one of the reasons why um, scientists are now telling us that young people today are going to be the first generation that won't live longer than the, than the previous one. Mm -hmm. And can link that clearly to three generations of the so-called standard American diet. So when we go back to things like the Dutch hunger winter and the Chinese famine study, which are based on the long-term effects of famine, you know, and people say, well, you know, what does that have to do with those of us who live in uh, North America and who don't suffer from famine but in fact we do because we if you're eating a diet that is heavy in processed foods you're suffering from a phenomenon known as high calorie malnutrition and you're just starvation you're not getting enough nutrients from what you eat and that is being passed on through the generations. And we now have the effects of three generations of um, a diet high in processed foods in runaway rates of obesity, type two diabetes, and ultimately heart disease. And, you know, it's, these, it's just not sustainable. Uh, something has to change, and the easiest thing to change is to not eat processed foods. I agree 100%, and I think that's a great note to end on. Just eat real food. I mean, that was the big takeaway I got from your book is, I mean, with all of the science in your book was uh, really pleasing to the geek inside of me. I, I loved reading all about the studies. That was fascinating to me. But my, my big takeaway is the same. You need to eat real food. It's good for you and it's good for your future generations. Thank you so much for being here. I really appreciate your book and I enjoyed our conversation. Outside of your book, do you have a website or anything? The website is judithfinlison.com. Uh, I'm, I'm on Instagram as well uh, and um, on Facebook. Perfect. Okay. Well, I'll make sure the links to those are in the show notes and beneath the video if you're watching this on YouTube. So thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. My Thanks for listening. Please write and review so other people can learn about this podcast. Find out more about sleep, hygiene, eating healthy, tasty recipes, zero-waste lifestyle, and lots more on thatorganicmom.com. Help us spread the word. Be blessed and stay healthy.